This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I seriously love BetterHelp so much. They're one of my favorite sponsors, and I will tell you why I love them so much. When I started this podcast, I was going through a really rough time. I'm talking drug relapse, drug addiction, drug abuse, relationship issues, anxiety, depression. I was going through one of the craziest moves of my life, so therapy really helped me get through a lot of that. And online therapy is, in my opinion, even better than going to a therapist's office because, let's face it, our lives have changed the last year or so, and I just feel like online therapy is the best way to go. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in less than 48 hours. They really do match you with, with a therapist so quickly. It takes, in my case, less than 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which might not really be locally available in all areas. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's super easy to access your account. You can log in, you can send a message to your counselor really at any time you want, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, whatever you prefer. I like to do phone sessions sometimes because sometimes I like to, to go on a walk when I, go on, when I do my therapy sessions. It's really up to you. Traditional therapy can come with kind of a stressful energy attached to it. So I really love how BetterHelp is really controlled by the, the patient. If you want to connect with your therapist and communicate something with them, they have a journal feature, which I absolutely love. This journal feature has the option of sharing your journal entries with your therapist, but if you want to keep them totally uh, private and anonymous towards yourself, you don't have to share them with your therapist. But I really like this feature because for many of us, starting fresh with a new therapist gives us a lot of anxiety and it can trigger us. Um, so if you feel like that, you're not alone. I felt the same exact way because let's face it, a new therapist has to ask questions and try to get on the same page as where their client is. And sometimes rehashing our, our history of trauma and all the details can become kind of exhausting and a little bit annoying. So what I do when I start with a new therapist, like I did on BetterHelp, is I use the journal feature and I wrote kind of a lengthy email explaining to the therapist where what I've been through in the last few years, where I'm at right now, what I'm looking for in therapy, and what kind of therapy I've done, what kind of therapy I'm interested in, and what I'd like um, out of a therapist. So this is super important. If starting with a brand new therapist gives you panic or anxiety or stress, 
This is the most stress-free approach you could possibly do. I love how they matched me with someone with the experience and qualifications that I asked for. I personally asked for a therapist who had some experience with eating disorders, depression, and relationship trauma. Once BetterHelp matched me with my therapist, she messaged me right away and then I scheduled my first session with her for that week. The process is easy, effortless, and stress-free. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. So if you're going through a hard time right now, and let's face it, so many of us are, whether it's emotional turbulence, depression, anxiety, relationship issues, LGBTQ issues, whatever it is, body image, self-esteem, BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com vibe. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Vibe within listeners, you get 10% off of your first month of online counseling at betterhelp.com slash vibe. That's betterhelp.com slash vibe. Betterhelp.com slash vibe. Go start online therapy. DM me on Instagram. Let me know how it's going. And I hope that you get the help, the support, and the healing that you deserve. Welcome to the Vibe Within Podcast. I'm your host, Gab Cohen. Each week, we will connect through stories and conversations about wellness, yoga, addictions, spirituality, mental health, rituals, and everything in between. The goal is to transform our traumas into strengths to create the change we desire in our lives. My mission is to help others by shining awareness on real-life topics so we can learn new ways to heal physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Whatever you are going through in this moment, you are not alone, so let's connect and heal our vibe within. Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Gab Cohen, and today's topic is really vulnerable for me to share in general about. Um, I figured this is the perfect time to release this episode because I am all about being completely real with where we're at in our healing journey. Um, Because on Instagram and on blogs, sometimes the only thing that people are sharing is how they've how they've overcome blank, you know, like how you've overcame your addiction or how you've overcame your eating disorder or your codependency issues and how that's in the past now and how, you know, everything's, everything's different now because you've, you've recovered or you've gotten through it. When I want to just say that could be your reality, that could be the reality of many people, um, getting through it, pulling up by by your bootstraps and just, you know, not looking back. But the truth of the matter is recovery and healing is not linear. And this podcast is 
the only pure channel that I have to communicate with, you know, my community or followers or listeners because Instagram only takes me so far. Instagram is just videos, pictures, and text. And we can get so lost in comparing our healing journeys to other people's healing journeys. And we can say, well, why is it so easy for them to, you know, get through those those toxic behaviors or that addiction or disordered eating or whatever it is? Um, and the truth is, is that, you know, it's really challenging to share, hey, this is the, this is the stuff that I'm still struggling with today. It's, it's a lot easier to share a post saying, this is what I used to struggle with, you know, because used to puts you in this realm of not anymore. I got over it. I overcame it. And now I'm better. And now I'm, now I'm not needing to use those behaviors. So what I'm trying to say is that I'm using this podcast as a real-time channel and tool to share with you guys what I'm actually going through in my healing journey. And I want to say that it is an up and down process because you know, if we sit if we sit ourselves down and you ask yourself <clears throat> like what what are some of the toxic behaviors that I have let go of since last year or two years ago or three years ago or or even 10 years ago? You can sit down and make a huge list of victories that you have created in your life. But the same, the same side of that coin um, can also represent, well, you know, I'm dealing with these health issues now or, you know, I've relapsed in in these little ways. We're always dancing, you know, we're always dancing with whatever it is that we are wrestling with, whether it's addiction, codependency, relationship issues, substance abuse, eating disorders, body image, body dysmorphia, trauma, whatever it is that you're dealing with. It's a constant dance and it's not going to be the same each week, each month. I definitely am a believer in astrology, so I like to always check in um, with what's going on in astrology because that kind of sets the table and sets the stage as far as like, okay, what are what are the energies? What are the issues that might come up? What are the transits that are happening? And I get a lot of my information from Jessica Lineato's podcast, um, ghost of a podcast. So what I'll do is I'll check in with that podcast and everything that she says, you know, threads itself in with mental health and, you know, emotional well-being. And a lot of the transits that happen can bring up different topics and different issues. Um, You know, some, some transits are very body related or physical related. Some transits are very home and family trauma related. Some transits are very Um, like depression and anxiety related. So it's always interesting to see how that kind of aligns and correlates in your life. So recently, the last, you know, year or so, I really have been taking my recovery seriously with my disordered eating and then, you know, substance abuse, as I have shared 
a lot about on this podcast. Now I'm sober um, and healing all sorts of trauma, like sexual trauma and relationship trauma and all the layers of trauma that can can come about. And I think that drinking and partying and doing drugs um, definitely had a a layering effect, if you will, to my trauma. Now, getting into the topic of, of today's episode, it is atypical anorexia. And a lot of people might hear that term and say, atypical, that's such a fucked up word. And I actually agree. I do not like that this is a clinical term um, in the eating disorder realm because atypical, like the word atypical, is just not like that fun of a word in general. But me and Erin dive deep into this topic and it is explained beautifully and this is what I'm going through right now in my journey. So our bodies are a very, very fragile vessel, but also strong and resilient at the same time, I must say. And through the years of my alcohol, drug use, you know, trauma, all the shit, um, it has left me with some health issues, you know, hypothyroidism, Hashimoto, chronic illness, autoimmune stuff that is just ongoing. And when you're stuck in that realm of, of healing a physical you know, disease, chronic illness, and you're on the journey of healing mental health and mental illness stuff like eating disorders or, you know, depression or severe anxiety or whatever it is that you're going through. The Like healing the physical and the mental at the same time can become a full-time job. And I feel like my life has become, you know, just a full-time job of emailing, you know, experts, emailing clinicians, emailing dietitians, you know, trying to find the the proper care and proper support that I need right now in my journey, especially in the United States, it's really challenging because of insurance and how, you know, insurance doesn't doesn't cover a lot, which is really just driving me insane. Um But what I am trying to get to right now is just like a happy medium and like a happy balance of healing the physical and healing the emotional. And it's it's almost like I've lost myself in the process, Um, which is why I just, you know, recorded that whole episode on overdosing on shadow work. So if you haven't listened to that one, go back an episode and listen to the most previous episode. Um, You graduated from shadow work school because basically when you're in the trenches and in the deep end of healing emotionally and physically, your world becomes consumed with that. And this is what I'm going through right now. I would, you know, I'm I'm very I'm feeling very very vulnerable and uncomfortable right now actually um sharing this this intro because atypical anorexia is not something that people talk about because it's 
it's almost um an embarrassment like because people don't understand that atypical anorexia is just as bad as anorexia so over the years like i was saying of of drugs alcohol all the abuse and self-destruction that i did to my body my hormones got fucked up my digestion got fucked up my metabolism got fucked up so if you've ever heard of the term you know starvation mode or permanent metabolic damage um a lot of fitness and health experts actually say that there's no such thing as starvation mode but i feel like a lot of them uh haven't really understood the term atypical anorexia which is you can live in a larger body and you can still starve yourself and you can still be in a larger or normal weight body and not quote-unquote look like you have anorexia. Now, what's been really getting to me recently is that people like to say, oh, well, that's impossible. You know, if you're, if you're restricting and you're starving yourself, then you're, you're, you're going to lose weight and you're, you're going to get thin and you're going to get skinny and whatever. Well, atypical anorexia kind of debunks that myth and it has to do with hormones and the endocrine system and um, permanent metabolic damage and, you know, chronic illness and especially Hashimoto and thyroid, your body um, starts to grind down and it can adjust to eating very little. And what's come to be in my life is that I've gone so far down the health conscious healing the Hashimoto and the thyroid stuff that I've kind of I've I realized that I limit I'm limiting myself to very little foods because I'm deathly afraid of a Hashimoto flare-up which I've talked about before on the podcast um Hashimoto flare-ups are so so uncomfortable it's like It's like, just imagine inflammation in your whole body, swelling, water weight, puffiness, bloating, sometimes diarrhea or constipation, um, just overall fatigue, and it's just terrible. So, I've been, you know, really, really careful with what I'm eating, and it's gotten to the point where I've realized, wow, I'm restricting myself quite a bit. And this is why I had Aaron come on the podcast because chances are someone in your life is dealing with an eating disorder and someone in your life who's close to you can have atypical anorexia because they might not look like they have anorexia, but they are dealing with issues with food and body and restricting themselves or starving themselves or just doing something that is not making them feel good in their body. So I'm going to read some statistics real quick before we get into the episode. It says, according to a study um, conducted by um, a, what is this, Recovery Village? I don't know. Um, 20% of youth with eating disorders may have atypical anorexia. We get into the definition of this, so 
you know, just listen to the episode. And I'm going to read some other eating disorder statistics real quick. And this is from the Eating Disorder Recovery Center or Eating Recovery Center, eatingrecoverycenter.com says, the latest statistics indicate that more than 30 million people in the U.S. will suffer from an eating disorder, and 10 million of those individuals are men. 13% of women, um, 13% of women over the age of 50 have symptoms of an eating disorder. This is the highest mortality rate, so eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness, with nearly one person dying every hour as a result of an eating disorder. Um, sufferers aren't always underweight. About 35% of binge eating disorder and 30% of bulimia patients are medically obese. Um, It's the third most chronic illness. Anorexia is the third most common chronic illness among adolescents. And yes, I mean, eating disorders are um, definitely known to develop in early stage, um, early adolescence. So, you know, 10 to 15 years old, it's it's getting to the point where I feel like everyone has some kind of weird issue with food or body, and it might not be a full-blown eating disorder. I'm not saying that, but I do think that in this day and age with social media and comparing our bodies and comparing our workouts and comparing what everyone's eating in a day with those what I eat in a day posts, um, It is a very comparative, toxic world out there, and if you are trying to recover from a physical illness, a mental illness, um, anything body-related, it can intertwine with food. It can intertwine with what you can eat, what you can't eat, especially if you're dealing with, like, you know, physical, chronic illnesses, because you have to be more careful with what you eat, so it makes you kind of hyper-focused on what you're putting in your body and how you feel and it can it can become very very intense and I know that I'm not the only one struggling with this and that's why I'm putting this out there I you know I think more people need to start talking about atypical anorexia because I see a lot of people on Instagram talking about recovering from binge eating and recovering from bulimia um, because for some reason, binge eating and bulimia is like very uh, intertwined with shame and guilt and disgust and like overindulgence and a lack of control and, and whatever. And then on the other side of that coin, anorexia is looked at as this vain disease that is just the people who have anorexia are like are are narcissists or vain or obsessed with with looks and obsessed with being in control which uh, I gotta tell you um is not is not usually the case um if you haven't listened to my episode from back in the summer I want to I want to say it was in August Um, There's a couple episodes where I dive deep into my journey with eating disorders and binge eating and recovering from binge eating, and then there's one about body dysmorphia. So um, I will try to remember to link those in the show notes, but if you just Google like the vibe within body dysmorphia or the vibe within um, binge eating, overcoming binge eating, those two episodes will come up and I dive really, really deep into my experience and my journey. Um, of over 15 years of disordered eating and 
body dysmorphia and the waves and the ebbs and flows of of eating disorders and and what they can feel like and and all that but you know this is something that people aren't talking about because it's so misunderstood like you don't have to be in a super skinny body to be sick or to deserve the treatment that you need you don't need to be in a super skinny body to be taken seriously sometimes the people in the gym who who look very in shape and very healthy and toned and perfect bodies they could be binging and purging you have no idea you know they could be engaging in like the most toxic eating habits and you know i'm putting myself on blast right now because recovery is not linear and you know when you see somebody in the recovery space only talking about how i used to do that and i used to do this it's like well there's got to be something that you're still doing that you're not happy about or there's got to be little glimpses of you know um relapse here and there because eating disorders in my opinion are 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 one of those things that are never fully recovered you can you can be weight restored and you can you can be recovered but it's still there um just like addiction you know if you're a full-blown addict you know you could be clean from that drug for 13 years but you still have those urges from time to time so people who are in recovery for eating disorders they will still have those thoughts those distorted distorted thoughts or behaviors or triggers or you know distorted ways of seeing yourself or urges like all these things are normal so I'm here to tell you that with whatever journey you're healing from, whether it's addiction or sex addiction or relationships or eating disorders, it's not linear and um, it is really healthy to write down lists of things that you've overcome and things that you've gotten through and then things that you are, you know, trying to release, toxic behaviors that are no longer serving you and how you can swap those out. I know it's easier said than done, but I think part of healing and part of really getting through those hurdles and those those ruts and plateaus of recovery of any kind is speaking it out, getting support, getting a therapist, getting specialists who you can talk to, talk to a friend, right? Like like support is the main thing that's going to help everybody heal and recover, which is why I have been emailing and texting I want to say like 50 specialists in the last few days just just sending tons of emails to people like hey I'm looking for this this is my price range I'm really struggling blah 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 so that's my spiel I know this was kind of a long intro but I just wanted to update you with what I am going through um you know living with chronic illness and metabolic damage and trauma to the body and atypical anorexia is not fun at all. So if you are struggling with this, you're not alone. Feel free to reach out to me. Feel free to reach out to Erin. She's awesome. I'm putting all of her info in the show notes. Um, She actually works out of the University of Denver and all of her work is atypical anorexia um, based. So someone in your life, you know, close to you, could be dealing with an eating disorder. Um, they could be, they could look normal on the outside, and they could be not normal on the inside. 
Um, so just keep that into consideration. And if you think that you're dealing with some kind of eating disorder or disordered eating, there's tons of resources out there. Um, there's free support groups out there. ANAD is one of them. The Eating Disorder Foundation is another. Um, you know, they, they usually pop up right away when you do a Google search. So um, my heart's with you. If you are struggling with this, you're not alone. I'm definitely struggling. And it's super, super frustrating because... Um, you know, sometimes you can feel very stuck and it's it's crazy to have this illness because it goes against a lot of like the biological science of reality, which is when you restrict, you lose weight and you become skinny and you know, that goes against that goes against science, right? Um because with atypical anorexia, you can be restricting even if it's unintentional and you can maintain your weight or gain weight and a lot of it does have to do with um you know for me at least it has to do with hormones and digestion and Hashimoto and chronic illness which can really really damage your entire endocrine system and your metabolism so that's my spiel um I'm sharing this because I'm getting to the point where I'm just tired of suffering in silence. So if anybody is struggling with this, feel free to reach out to me, email me, or just DM me. So without further ado, let's get into this episode with Erin. I think you're going to love her. She's awesome. We get super deep and um, we get kind of spiritual and wooey as well, which I love. So enjoy. So I heard you on a podcast. I, it's hard for me to remember which one it was, but it might have been Whitney's. Um, and this was around the time that I was like binging on just any type of content that I could with eating disorders and podcasts and stuff like that. And I fell in love with what you were sharing and it felt like you were speaking to my soul. And it's just, I love everything that you were talking about. So um I'd love to welcome you onto the podcast and um, get a little overview of what type of work you do, because your type of work is more detailed and in the nitty gritty, which is what I love. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, that description, because I, I definitely kind of dive in deep. Um, and yeah, my work uh, broadly has to do with... Um, eating disorders and patients who are not typically represented in eating disorder literature. Uh, so thinking kind of beyond the thin, white, cisgender, young female um, that we kind of, we see those stories in eating disorders a lot, um, but yeah. there's a lot more folks that have these disorders. So. Um, in particular, my work tends to overlap a lot with weight stigma because I look at the stories of people with higher body weight um, and people too that um, have bodies that might be kind of more in the middle of the BMI spectrum where people just kind of assume that, oh, this person, quote, looks so healthy, so how could they ever have an eating disorder? So um, yeah, that's uh, kind of an an overview of my work. Um, I, I use mixed methods. So I use things like surveys that rely on statistics to draw uh, conclusions. And I also use interviews, stories, art, um, and that qualitative element. Um, and I tend to 
kind of like you said, it, it's definitely in the weeds and it's pretty um, detail. And I tend to do deep dives into certain topics as opposed mm-hmm. to kind of bigger overviews. Yeah. And that's what I love about your work. Um, and I guess we're going to get into that, into all your creative modalities of healing. And we're definitely going to get into that because that's, I'm all about integration and like how, like, it's awesome to like know these things and to know where we're at and to like have a clinical um, label, if you will, of like, you know, why these behaviors came to be and everything. But integration is something really that's it's challenging. It's like, okay, how do we actually bring these things to life? But mm-hmm. before we get into that, I'd love to kind of define um, atypical anorexia and define for the audience um, just, you know, different eating disorders that that occur. And because on social media, I feel like um, body image and disordered eating and um, weight is, is talked about, but I don't feel like this realm of eating disorders is the part where you can have an eating disorder and not look like you are. So I'd love to hear your definition of atypical anorexia. Yeah. So um, anorexia is a disease where people uh, engage in self-starvation. We refer to that as restriction um, in that people restrict how many, how much food that they eat or the calories that are in their food. Um, And with anorexia, um, you know, the majority, like between 50 and 60% in our prevalence studies of folks also have behaviors that are um, perceived as what we call bulimic behaviors. Um, So things like binging or purging. So um, with anorexia, you often see that you always see a restriction element and you often see like a compulsive exercise element. And then you know, pretty frequently you also see things like a, um, a, uh, purging or binging behavior as well. And, um, one thing that I think, so basically, and and we also see, um, cognitive symptoms. So things like obsessing about food or restricting, obsessing about exercise, um, obsessing about numbers and um, calories, sizes, weights, that type of thing. Um, And we also see kind of a a disruption in terms of how people see their bodies. So some people um, see themselves as, you know, looking much larger than they are. Um, And all of these eating disorders, um, whether it's anorexia or bulimia or some of the other ones that we'll talk about, um, also have an element where we call it overvaluation of weight and shape. So this idea that like how, how much a person weighs or what they look like uh, takes up too much of their headspace. You know, it's too important right. to them. Um, now, how you define that, uh, you know, I think that gets really tricky because we're just surrounded in a cultural soup that really highly values weight and shape of individuals. And so it's a little bit tricky to um say, okay, well, this is like normal dissatisfaction in our culture, but this is pathological dissatisfaction. Um, But yeah, in in the case of 
a typical anorexia or in the case of anorexia, you see people, there's like an arbitrary cutoff um, that the APA or the a- AMA come up with in terms of, you know, a, a weight, a, a weight and height ratio that they define as too low. Um, mm-hmm. And that's uh, that specific number is something that kind of changes often whenever a new version of the DSM or ICD-10 or ICD comes out. Um, but generally, like, you could just think of it as, like, there's some cutoff for thinness that qualifies a person as uh, having anorexia. And mm-hmm. if you're above that arbitrary cutoff, you're considered, quote, atypical. Right. Um, and it, it's kind of it's a little funny because it's actually more typical to be atypical than typical. So right. <laughs> it's more yeah. common for people to be in that higher, higher weight category. And so what, what we see is that, um, you know, just as there's kind of natural diversity, if you were to kind of graph everybody's heights in a population, you'd see that it would form a beautiful bell curve, you know? And so for, you know, for an adult to be, four feet tall, that would be more rare. So there's be kind of at one end of a curve. And for an adult to be, you know, seven foot two, that would also be pretty rare. Um, And then there's a lot of, you know, more common numbers in the middle. Um, And and weight is is displayed similarly, where for someone to be very, very thin is pretty rare. And for someone to be very, very fat is pretty rare. But there's a lot of kind of people in the middle of that um Mm -hmm. and you know one of the challenges with anything like this is we want to say okay well here's this magic formula you know you're this tall and your body structure is like this so you should be able to weigh this amount of weight and the reality is is that even with all of our medical advances and technologies we can we can make a pretty good guess but at the end of the day, it's a guess, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of our body that has the wisdom for where um, it's going to settle in terms of weight. And so some right. of these arbitrary cutoffs are just not super useful. Um, mm-hmm. So and anyway, I I got a little off topic there describing eating disorders. But no, 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 that's very helpful. <laughs> essentially, atypical anorexia is anorexia. Um, and the weight is a bit different. Um, like in an atypical body that people identify an anorexic body being in. Exactly. So, like, I mean, it's it's almost more about our own stigma as people than it is about yeah. a, a different disease. And that that's my belief as a, a researcher and clinician who has looked at this deeply and many people in the field would, you know, fight me on that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) That's, uh, that's what I can conclude from what I've learned so far. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like maybe years ago, I mean, I talk about this openly on the podcast um, in like 2005. So this was quite some time ago. Um, I was, you know, put in inpatient for anorexia, but I didn't really know what was going on. I was so young that it wasn't, um, it didn't start in the typical way of, um, oh, I want to be skinny or there was a little bit of that. There was a little bit of the body image stuff. There was a little bit of the, at the time, pro 
Anna stuff, which is absolutely fucking insane. Um, I hope that doesn't even exist anymore. But um, yeah, and I feel like what you're saying is it's so true because everybody's body's different, right? And then so I I like to compare it to like addiction, you know, alcoholism or narcotics anonymous. Everybody's addiction is so different. Like I've gone to meetings, I've heard stories, everybody's, you know, way, everybody's phases and all the rounds and all the, you know, um, relapses and then, you know, fallbacks or slip ups. It's different. It looks different, sounds different for everyone. And I feel like having numbers and rules on what makes you sick enough to get treatment, for example, is really, really disturbing. Um, And what you were saying, like with the cognitive symptoms, I'd love to get more deeper into that because I guess that's more of a pure way to analyze someone. Okay, yeah, like you, you definitely have an eating disorder, you know, like this is not normal. Um, Not having to base anything on weight or, or BMI or anything like that. So I'd love to get more into that. Like, what are some personality traits that you see um, firsthand in atypical anorexia, you know, clients and or just across the board and eating disorders? You mentioned a little bit of like, you know, obsessing about weight and numbers. Um, and I'd, I'd just love to get more into that, like personality traits, um, ways that we ways that we hold our energy, mm-hmm. you know, all that. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say just kind of in general, assessing based on kind of the cognitive symptoms that folks have and the behavioral symptoms is, from my point of view as as a clinician, just a much better way of assessing how severe a person's disorder is. Um, Another thing we look at too is is functioning, um, which is kind of a a weird word, but essentially like, are you able to do the things in life that you want to do for whatever developmental stage of life that you're in? You know, if you're in elementary school, are you able to, you know, go to school and have a quality engagement with your peers and with your family members at home? Are you able to do activities that normal grade schoolers do? Kind of similarly for middle school and high school, are you taking steps towards autonomy and what's your mental health like? You know, are you able to participate in life for a a typical middle schooler or high schooler? Is your mental health kind of blocking that? Um, And same thing kind of for adults. We look at, you know, is this person able to hold a job? Are they able to take care of their health? Can they have rewarding relationships or is there something about food or body image um, or weight that is kind of blocking, you know, engagement in hobbies and work and um, kind of social activities. So those kind of three areas of like cognitive functioning behaviors um, and behaviors would be things like the time that you actually spend engaged in eating disorder behaviors. So restriction and purging and binging and compulsive exercise and the the repetitive and obsessive thought patterns and how much time you spend beating yourself up. Um, Right. And, uh, you know, and then, you know, combined with those cognitive factors as well. Um, I would say in general that um, 
there's a lot of different personality types within eating disorders and a lot of different, um, like we see a lot of different people that get these disorders for different reasons. Um, often we talk about people who are either, um, very highly controlled with a very high kind of locus of control located in themselves. So these folks often, um, are very self-motivated, very disciplined, uh, mm-hmm. perfectionistic, attentive to details. Um, this can also be kind of often partnered with compulsive and obsessive personality traits. Um, we see a lot of overlap with obsessive compulsive disorder and, and eating disorders of this type. Um, and there's this kind of you know, desire to, to be controlled and oftentimes in, in folks with those personality traits, you know, some of the, the emotions are a bit muted or, um, less in touch with because there's kind of so much cognitive restraint happening. Um, and then we also see, um, some folks with eating disorders that kind of fall to the other end of, um, things being like out of control or disrupted, um, where it's very, easy to swing from one emotion to another. Um, often with these folks, there's kind of this impulsiveness or um, kind of a swinging <laughs> that happens in terms of mood. We call it lability. Um, these are often people that are more willing to take risks, um, which is a, a fantastic character trait in certain circumstances. And then um, a lot, a lot more dangerous than others. Right. So, um, yeah, like, like being disciplined is great, but I feel like, um, folks with eating disorders take it to the extreme. Exactly. And I, and I think in, in both of these kind of like, these are kind of like, you know, archetypes of different struggles that a person may have. And, and people might identify with some of each, you know, that's also not, out of the question that you might present with some things where you are very much, you know, um, very over controlled. And then a a few things where you might have kind of this impulsive or reckless kind of streak, um, at certain times, or maybe when depression or anxiety are are high. Um, Mm -hmm. but I, I think with both of these, oftentimes, especially in like the eating disorder, mental health world, we might focus on all the negative things about the dangers of that, you know, like how bad it is to be over-controlled and how hard it is to have good relationships or, you know, how, you know, dangerous or damaging mood lability can be or how terrible it is to be a risk taker or that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I hope, I hope from like a, a social work standpoint, a patient centered standpoint, a recovery standpoint that we can also think about like, what are some of the strengths or the gifts in those, you know, tendencies? And can we, you know, for me, recovery is a lot about balance. Like how do we bring those things into a little bit more perspective and a little bit more balance so that instead of, you know, causing disruption and dysfunction and paralysis in a person's life or damage or destruction, that those same characteristics could be maybe more finely tuned so that, you know, we can take advantage of some of these like inherent strengths that um, people possess. Yeah, 
I love that because like I'm really into Buddhism and basically a big, you know, limb and theory and teaching in Buddhism is how can I make myself more useful, like Mm -hmm. to my life and just be more present. And I love this idea of like, okay, like there's this there's this energy, right, of the eating disorder, whether it's whatever kind of eating disorder it is, or if it's just, you know, obsession with over-exercise or whatever. There's this energy and how can we channel it and extract, like, the, the, the good parts of it, like the, you know, the the disciplined and the, just the energy of it. How can we alchemize that and transmute it into healing and, you know, ch- change that toxic behavior into something um, with that same energy, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if I think about, you know, oftentimes, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe any therapist might feel like their patients are the most special or cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but when I think about like some of the like sheer persistence and determination um, that folks with eating disorders have and the amount of time, energy, and focus that they can spend, um, you know. It's over- unbelievable. Yes, it's, it's so <laughs> I totally hear you. <laughs> and like, you know, and this is like one of the, the biggest tragedies for me about eating disorders is that it it steals all this time, energy, and focus from some of the most talented and high capacity and talented people that I know. And mm-hmm. so, um, and that I think is one of the, the, the saddest things, aside from like the, the personal destruction and the danger and the potential life loss and that kind of thing, just this, you know, the way that eating disorders can just like absorb so much time and potential and, and part of, you know, that's part of what keeps me so motivated in my work and in my personal life to to be working towards recovery and how to make recovery accessible and engage, like anybody can engage in it. Like, what do we do so that we can like tap all this untapped potential and like mm-hmm. channel it in a different direction? <laughs> right. Like, what's the practical way to somehow because we could sit here all day and or you can sit and talk to a therapist all day about where the eating disorder came to be which is really important you know it's important to to know the why which maybe we can get into just a little bit like you know you you mentioned um control like like living in a controlling atmosphere um for me personally my eating disorder um came to be because of just family dynamics and changes and um i come from a dance background so it was just a little bit of everything it was a little bit of physical reality stuff it was a little bit of at home stuff um so i'd love to hear kind of why like why do eating disor- why do, do eating disorders exist you know like i i look at it as a, a way to cope, a way to channel mm-hmm. trauma. Um, I'd love to hear your your aspect on that. Yeah, um, such a big question. Um, you know, and when we think about eating disorders, we think about them in terms of biopsychosocial. I add spiritual um, illnesses, and um, I love terms, that. Yeah, in, in terms of the bio. Um, 
you know, we have to, we think often about like genetics um, and about heritability. So we think of things like, you know, twins with eating disorders are more likely to to have, you know, like if one twin has an eating disorder, the other twin is more likely to have it. If they're identical, it's more likely to, to hmm. happen. Um, so, and we also know that like having relatives in your family who have had eating disorders is also more highly correlated. Now, the extent to which there's a genetic component versus like inherited family traits and inherited family ways of being, you know, that's where this all gets mushy. Um, and I would also add that there's like ep likely epigenetic, which has to do with like um, that influence of like culture and history on genetics that's also in play here. So, um, you know, some of the patients that I interview that are indigenous um, can trace back through generations in their family's history how food and starvation or colonization has impacted their whole family and ancestors way of being with food in their bodies. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, we see this also in people who experience um, changes in like immigration status, moving from one part of the world to another, where there's um, big life altering changes for people and for peoples, you know, for their ancestors, for families um, that, you know, I don't think we think about some of those historical trauma factors enough in how we conceptualize eating disorder vulnerability. We often just think about the one person in their one nuclear family. Um, but really, I think for these, especially for these bio, biological forces, we have to also think about the histories of people um, and families and, and ancestors. Um, so that's kind of the, the biological component. We also know that like certain biological things are more common for people to get eating disorders. For instance, um, fatter people are more likely to have eating disorders. That's that's not because they eat too much. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. We actually, in, in studies that look at like how much fatter people eat versus thinner people, there there isn't actually like a, a statistical difference in amounts and frequencies, which um, makes me think that this has a lot more to do with like biodiversity <laughs> than it does actual specific eating behaviors. Um, but uh, it could be that fat folks are at higher risk of eating disorders because of things like um, stress, like thinking about like the, the stress that people um, in higher weight bodies, especially in, you know, many Western cultures today, um, there's just more stress and body shame and, and more of a mm. sense of responsibility to try and fix fat bodies than folks yeah. with thin bodies. And um, diet culture. Yeah, absolutely. It's fat people Social are media. likely to be told to go on diets, to sometimes to be forced to go on diets. Um, so, yeah, I think those types of things all are in that bio sphere. Um, and then in terms of psycho, like we already talked about some of those kind of personality traits that make folks more vulnerable, you know, and, you know, if you have a, a young perfectionistic, um, very driven, very black and white thinking child, they are likely more at risk for some of these eating disorders than um, children who 
are a little bit more easygoing or flexible in their thinking. Um, mm-hmm. And so like messages like, you know, a certain food is quote bad, like for that child who has that rigid thinking and that perfectionism already inherent, they're going to receive that message about that food being quote bad very differently than somebody who has a lot more flexibility in their thinking or who doesn't have as much obsession about being perfect or doing things the right way. So Yeah. Um, and I think like a kid, it's interesting because eating disorders um, are, you know, more likely to develop in early childhood compared to drugs and alcohol. Like yep. it's easier to um, access an eating disorder as a coping skill as, you know, to, to deal with whatever's going on at home or to deal with whatever's going on at school or to deal with whatever you're seeing um, on social media telling you that your body's too fat or whatever. Um, And I think it's, you know, a a kid can hear something like that and take that and run with it and then amplify it and then use that. And it's like, I guess, um, you know, everybody's eating disorder is – stemmed from a different uh self-limiting belief I guess like Mm -hmm. it can it's a the the purpose of the eating disorder is different for everyone some people it is simply for um you know I want to get skinny I want to get thin it could start with that it could also start at home and feeling like nobody listens to you and nobody takes you seriously or you, you're watching mom and dad fight or, you know, you, your parents got through, went through a divorce at a young age. You, you felt um, there's so many different like, like archetypal stories of, of it happening. And I, I, I don't know where I'm going here, but it's just it's every case is so um, unique and yeah. I'd love to kind of dovetail into what it's like for someone to reach that point. You, you mentioned before, um, like, you know, someone in a, in a larger body, you know, who maybe technically isn't eating more than someone in a smaller body um, or they're starving themselves, yet they're still in a larger body, which... Mm-hmm. I go to a lot of eating disorder meetings, um, and this seems to be a very common common thread. You know, well, I'm I'm you know I'm not eating that much. Um, I don't look sick, so you know people you know don't really consider me as having a problem. My family doesn't you know um, think I have a problem anymore because maybe I'm weight restored or maybe I look healthy on the outside. What's going on psychologically when someone comes into your practice and? they are eating in a way that is, you know, very anorexic, you know, like they're not nourishing their body enough. Mm -hmm. Um, What, what's your process just starting off with someone like that? So I think a lot of it at the beginning or at that point in time has to do with um, decreasing that denial and that minimization of the eating disorder. Um, because there's often what's happening is, is this person, you know, maybe they have been at a lower weight before and maybe their body, quote, looked sicker, um, or maybe it never has. You know, maybe they were a, a very high weight person and their body has just 
decreased to a point where now people finally stop giving them crap about their bodies. Um, you know, and there's this assumption of like, oh, you lost weight. This is such a wonderful, healthy thing. Um, and then sometimes where like the person has maybe lost a lot of weight, but still is in a body that would be um, considered high weight or still discriminated against for being higher right. weight. Um, and they're still like starving themselves, absolutely. which is, yes, it's so fucked up. And like, so stressful for them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, like doctors, parents, parents will think that kids are like sneaking candy or sneaking foods. Doctors will assume that patients are under reporting that they're, you know, saying that they eat a lot less than they do. And um, what I've found in my research, when I've actually asked patients, like, what are they actually eating that um, sometimes it's, it's really heartbreaking how little these folks are eating and how, um, you know, there's it, basically at that point, like the doctors or parents or other people in your life kind of become the voice of your eating disorder. Like, you know, they say like, oh, you're eating too much or you must not know how much you're actually eating. Or, you mm-hmm. know, um, if you were, if you were really starving yourself you would look different like and that's that's what the eating disorder says like right the eating disorder says you're not sick enough you haven't lost enough weight oh you just ate that that's terrible it's way too much you know your right. body can't use it like that's the eating disorder and so when like friends and loved ones start sounding like the eating disorder it's really challenging because all of a sudden in addition to like your own head you're also having to fight this voice of like outside you and this pressure outside you. And it can make people like second guess every step of their recovery. It can lead to relapse Um, or it can lead to a person never even getting a chance to taste recovery. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and especially in, um, you know, the the research is a little divided on this, but um, in the research that I've seen that looked at people that have had, eating disorders for a while um, and who have, who are in kind of in quote, atypical anorexia illness, often these folks have higher or, and by higher, I mean, worse, um, worse cognitive symptoms than people in lower weight bodies. So oftentimes their obsession over weight and shape, their obsession over calories, over counting, um, their dissatisfaction, their overvaluation, like often those things are higher and worse. Um, and that sense of internalized weight stigma, how badly they feel towards themselves and their body. Um, and that, I mean, that makes sense to me because they're receiving feedback from society or doctors or parents that your body is too much and you do weigh too much. Um, right. And if yeah, you- yeah. Okay. No, I was just going to say like, and there's also people, I mean, to use me as an example, I guess. Um, so I would probably classify classify myself in the category of atypical anorexia, just because um, I do definitely still like find myself obsessing about what I'm what I'm eating or what I'm allowing myself to eat. But it's rooted in autoimmune disease and Hashimoto and. Um, my my metabolism is permanently damaged from the years of my eating disorders, um, which I think people don't realize. Um, you know, you, once your body has been through so much, 
Um, you know, it's, it's like we ask so much of our bodies and, you know, now I'm, I'm getting older and I'm realizing like, I really need to take care of the holistic part of my body in order to heal the things that my eating disorder triggered, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. Like I think people, younger folks um, don't realize how the eating disorder can trigger all sorts of permanent damage. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then they, they might be sitting there like, Oh, well, you know, 10 years ago, it was so easy for me to lose weight. Um, I'm eating the same amount. I'm eating like an anorexic person, but you know, people are maintaining their weight and Mm -hmm. that's also fucked up, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, what, like, what is, um, this kind of, how do you start helping people, um, physically and emotionally, um, kind of get out of that stuck Mm -hmm. spot of feeling so trapped in this control, wanting to control the body, wanting to either get smaller or just just being like terrified to, of gaining weight. Um, how do you reach like a happy medium almost, or what, what's the, what do you do with them? Um, how do you reframe, uh, their, their, their mind? How, How do you help them? Yeah. You know, that's kind of the, the million dollar question in a lot of eating disorders research. Um, but one of the things that, that I would say is that, you know, we can't fix people's disordered minds as long as their bodies are starved, you know, and, and in the same way, when we have a person who's presenting with a lot of um, thinness and they're starved um, with larger people too, that are starving, like we have, we have to like food is medicine, right? Like, and Mm -hmm. until like, as long as we're in that deprived state, um, food is going to continue to be the biggest thing. It's we're going to obsess about it. We're going to lose and spend so much time thinking about our body and calories and weight or macros, whatever it is, whatever your thing is with food, like we will lose ourselves in it, especially if we continue to, to try and fix it with a starving mind. And so, um, one, one of the first things, which is so hard and, you know, one of the things that makes eating disorder recovery such a challenge is that you know in the midst of all of that mental anguish and obsession like the first step towards healing is getting nourished you know and that's and i and i can't overstate that enough and um oftentimes you know if we see people and like it looks like their bodies are like there's maybe they're back to where they were prior to their eating disorder or something or you know, they're starting to look or seem more like themselves, but their mind is still a battlefield and it's still obsessed. Oftentimes I wonder, like, we might have a little bit more recovery to go physically, you know, and, and yeah. maybe they're, you know, especially for people who've been in an eating disorder for a long time, who have many, maybe many years of restriction, or for people that were, had an eating disorder during periods of like growth like as an adolescent or as a child, um, even into kind of the young adult years when your body is still kind of settling into its more mature yeah. form. Like That was me. Yeah. yeah. You might not know, we might not know what a health, like what your body is normally just because we've right. never seen you nourished. Oh my God. That so, really speaks to me because yeah. 
I mean, I was um, 15 years old. I mean, mm-hmm. and I, I think going through puberty was definitely something that triggered me to look at my body in a new way. I was like, oh, I don't feel the same. Mm-hmm. I don't feel good. Nobody's, you know, nobody's showing me what a, what a healthy body image looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't like the way that I felt with this weight gain, but I, I didn't know what it, I didn't know why I felt. I didn't have the, 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 the vocabulary or the language. And then my obsession with, um, with like exercising, because I was an active kid, you know, but I think I started to feel that control and that that um, channeling of my self-esteem and family stuff um, so easily and effortlessly channeling into this eating disorder that was developing. And then it just, it just spirals. And then, you know, you, you, you don't, you don't even realize what's going on. It, the eating disorder takes a new shape. It, um, you know, everybody's story is different, but I think this, this concept of, nourishing like okay step one nourish how can we nourish our bodies in a deeper way whatever that means to you um because a lot of treatment facilities you know i've heard horror stories about um treatment facilities like saying you have to eat this kind of food or you have to eat that kind of food and i'm all about intuitive eating um i love that concept but for people like me, who are, you know, they have some, I would say, autoimmune orthorexic tendencies because all of these food fears, all of these, and it's, you know, biological too. I think eating disorders will fuck up your your metabolism, your digestion. It, you know, I've heard so many stories of people, you know, um, yeah, like I started nourishing myself and my my stomach would blow up like a balloon, um, you know, so it's like a, it's like a paradox, you know, like you're trying to heal, you're trying to recover, you're trying to nourish, but your body's, you know, fighting back and all of these symptoms can occur. Um, especially for folks who have been restricting for a long period of time, like you said. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, and that's, you know, aside from just kind of like the the kind of acute shifts that we get in terms of fluid shifts when we go from restricting to starting to eat again, um, there is this whole, you know, your, your body when it's starved, whether it's starved in a thin body or it's starved in a fat body, um, it has so many things that shut down in that process of not getting enough nutrients, you know, and Oftentimes, I I don't know, people have this like idea that like, you know, if you stop eating your body can, you know, if you, if you stop eating and your fat, your body can just like magically transform the fat into like everything that it needs in order to be a healthy body. And, and the reality is like, it can't do that. Like, it's not just, you know, like, and, and when it does transform, you know, different things into other things it creates byproducts biologically that then drain through your kidneys drain through your liver um, which is part of the reason why we see um, people with kidney and liver failure who are starving you know Mm -hmm. and like all of that puts stress 
on a body, you know? And so we have this kind of idea like, oh, well, if I need energy, I'll just find it from somewhere else. Well, yeah, but we borrow it from other important functions. And, you know, when you don't have the things that you need for long enough, um, there can be permanent changes that happen to your gut flora, to your digestive system. Exactly. Um, And, you know, and that can happen, you know, and this is what's, you know, mind boggling to me, like, as, as physicians and, and doctors and nurses, like they know that this can happen at any size, um, but it's like they don't know that it can happen at any size. Um, so, yeah, it, right. we, we see it happen all the time. Dr. Gaudiani in her book, you know, Sick Enough, you know, talks about like the, the amazingly creative strategies that a body uses to adapt to starvation is so cool that it like keeps some of us alive for a little while, but there's so many consequences that come with it. And, um, you know, we talk in, in eating disorder recovery, we talk about a lot about regaining body trust. Like how do we, you know, essentially in our eating disorders, we cause, ourselves and our body tremendous trauma it's it's not a a non-violent peaceful thing to starve you know like it's it's deliberately causing harm to our bodies and I, I don't say that to shame us I just say that to like recognize that right. you know that this is you know in the same way that people who are you know, forcibly starved in, you know, situations where that happens, like it's an act of violence against our body. And it takes a long time for our bodies to heal from whatever that initial thing is. And some people's bodies don't, you know, like some people, and this is why, you know, every body reacts differently to starvation. And some bodies are, quote, really good at being starved. And I hope you hear my sarcasm in that. Um, because yeah. um, what I mean is that like they can put up with a lot of crap for a long time, but right. then all of these other things are sacrificed along the way. Gut function, mm-hmm. kidney function, heart function, reproductive function. There's all these things yeah. that are sacrificed. Um, and, the psych- and the psychoactive effect, too, yes. of... Yeah. of feeling depressed, feeling anxious, feeling withdrawn, feeling angry, Easily bitter. overwhelmed. You yeah, know, regressing developmentally, starting to act, you know, years or stages younger than you are because mm. like your body cannot handle the maturity that you're at. Um, yeah. Wow. That that piece right there actually really resonates with me. And I'm not proud of that at all. Um, but I've been doing a lot of, you know, trauma healing work with my therapist mm-hmm. and on my own. And I consciously know that my adolescent part of myself, you know, 15 year old Gab, she's still um, very, very loud. And she's like running the show sometimes. And she was, you know, maybe the volume of her was lowered for a little while, like when I was in college, and I was sleeping around and I was doing drugs and the eating disorder um, lowered. But now that I'm sober, that I'm, you know, healing trauma, Um, I'm clean. It's interesting because um, just like, you know, people, people who use drugs, you know, one person can be using a little bit of drugs and it can totally fuck their world up. They can, you know, 
they can they can spiral into a deep dark depression and just get into this crazy place and then some people can do a, a lot of drugs and function like a normal person which is crazy mm-hmm. same thing with eating disorders um like I, I i it's interesting because now that i'm sober um that i've been sober for like over a year that's when little eating disorder remnants started to get louder and that's what people might be dealing with as well because i I think a lot of the community that listens to this podcast is sober curious Mm -hmm. um and is i get a lot of you know dms and messages from from people you know i'm healing trauma i'm healing sexual assault i'm healing family trauma um and i think that when you're doing that work with a sober mind the the mind will try to latch on to anything that can help you cope anything at all um you know disordered eating exercise and i think now in this day and age of everyone being so like well i won't say everyone but there's a lot of people in this community who are aware of you know their wounds and these eating disorders and disordered eating in general can is becoming more you know, prominent in our culture because everyone's just trying to cope. Yes. You know, especially with COVID right now and um, with just, which is essentially, you know, the way I'm conceptualizing it right now is like a sustained long-term acute trauma, you know, Mm -hmm. whether that's something that is, um, that you see how it's kind of like impacting you a lot in any given point in time, but I mean, it has, it has changed everything about how we live and communicate and the kind of relationships and supports that we have. Um, and uh, you know, those things for many of us changed in an instant, you know, and coupled with the uncertainty of when things go back to normal, um, which, you know, for at least for those of us in America, like we, like we are very far from normal. Um, and that, you know, that stressor, that trauma, that uncertainty, all of those are things that, um, you know, eating disorders and other coping mechanisms like substance use, like that's, that's, that's where those things thrive, you know? And so, yeah, no, I, I, I have a lot of interest in the, in, uh, eating disorders when they co-occur with substance use, you know, just personally yeah. and professionally. So, yeah. Well, I can be your guinea pig at any time. <laughs> you can you can pick my brain at any time because I, I mean, I've, not to brag, but I have yeah. both worlds. Um, <laughs> I think it's like, I, so today I was listening to a podcast and it was interesting what they were saying to get more into like the spiritual Um, component I think like what we're what we're trying to get at here is like okay how can we like how can someone recover how can someone get out of that um, I hate my body I'm gonna starve myself or I'm just gonna you know in in that in that cycle in that toxic cycle and I think obviously awareness is is the first step as well like like cognitively understanding okay this is not normal and I don't deserve this. Mm-hmm. And like, like having those conversations with yourself, I guess, like when I do that with myself, like, okay, this is not normal. Um, 
I don't need to take this out of my body. Um, things like that. And just like talking it in ways like that and journaling. Um, but I was listening to this podcast and the, they were saying, you know, we don't choose our body when we come down in, in, in this lifetime. We don't choose our hair color. We don't choose the color of our skin. Um, so instead of wasting so much time and energy in trying to change our body, um, you know, in a more extreme way, other than going to the gym is great. You know, wanting to be healthy is great. But when you get past that, that point and it becomes obsession with changing the body and feeling like shit and it ruling your life, um, they were saying, you know, maybe the body that, that you were given is supposed to be the vessel that you have in order to heal people, in order to help people, because certain people will resonate with you and the body that you're given will um, resonate with certain people when they see your body. Mm-hmm. That is that is such a, a deeply profound thought um, and so, so important. Um, you know, I, so I, I, I think to answer this question, I'm going to have to be, go more towards personal than academic right now. Yeah, please. Um, because I don't think the science has a good answer for us yet. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I think, um, you know, like in stories, first of all, in store in studies of recovery, like people use all different kinds of definitions and like so many of them really don't resonate for me you know um because like whether or not a person has a certain bmi or like menstruates like like that you know that that's that's not what i'm concerned about when i'm concerned about recovery what i want to know is like how are you living with you you know how are you inhabiting your body and how much peace do you have you know and and beyond just like that neutral state like how are you living and thriving and doing what you were meant to do, whatever that thing is. And, um, and that like, we can't tell just by like measuring some hormones and putting a person on a scale, you know? And so, you know, I, th- I think what, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think a lot about body image distortion, about our relationships with our body and, um, you know, I think when I, when I started kind of a recovery journey, um, there was this kind of promise of like, you know, okay, well right now, like you look in the mirror and you know, your point of view is all messed up and you know, it's like you're staring in a mirror and it's crooked and you're just seeing things and they're distorted. But eventually in recovery, like that frame is going to straighten out and you're going to see yourself as you're, you really are and how beautiful you are. And, um, you know, like you'll finally be able to appreciate your body and all of its unique beauty, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that for me hasn't ever happened, you know, and (laughs) at at one point in time, I was like, you know, like I would be happy if like, I mean, I don't even have to love my body. I'd be happy if I just didn't want to like vomit every time I see my body, like, you know, for real, like, yeah. I mean, there's definitely people he- listening to this who are in that in that headspace. You know. Yeah, like, like I, you know, I, I like even neutrality, like just like looking in the mirror and being like, huh, you know, like yeah, that seemed like a flipping pipe dream to me, you know. <laughs> and 
and I would say in like many ways, uh, you know, the, those are still pipe dreams, but um, part of how I've experienced recovery is that like, it just doesn't flip and matter as much anymore. Like there was a time in my life, you know, and, and a long extended like years, probably even a decade um, where like the thought of my body being actually physically fat um, by what our society considers fat. Um, like I, I would think in my head, I would rather die than be fat. Like that was a literal like thought. It was a conscious choice. When I engaged in my eating disorder, it was a choice that I made of like, mm -hmm. you know, people would say like, this could kill you. And I'd be like, yep. You know, um, but at some point I got enough recovery that I no longer valued my life so little <laughs> that yeah. fatness was that much of a threat, you know, and, and now you know, you can't see me, you don't necessarily know what my body looks like. Um, but like, I am larger than I've ever been in my life. Um, and it also kind of matters the least, you know, and so wow. it's, you know, I love that. It's, it's not, it's not something I'm happy about. It's not something that I'm like, I don't look in the mirror and think like, Oh, I look good. I'm, you know, I'm not one of those like beautiful recovery butterfly people. That's like, yeah. I bloomed into this beautiful being. It's like, no, like I kind of bloomed into my own worst nightmare, you know, something <laughs> that I thought I would kill myself over. Um, but now I have like, my life is so valuable that like, I don't want to die. You know, there's just like more importance yeah. and substance in your life. Like that is just like so beautiful to hear. So and I, important yeah things. and when I see all those accounts you know god bless them you know like um <laughs> really just like putting out that that fat positivity which is needed in this culture Absolutely. don't get me wrong um but I don't see myself as ever being like that either um you know I'm obviously in a bigger body than I was when I was anorexic and it's hard it's mm -hmm. it's it's hard because the mind is so fucked up and the mind will trick you. Oh, well, you felt so good at that weight. I'm like, no, you didn't, you know, um, <laughs> like, no, you didn't physically, like, emotionally. No, you didn't. And like, that's the paradox. You hated yourself so much. <laughs> it, yeah. And that's exactly what I was just about to say. Like eating disorders, the paradox of them is okay. So um, you, you use these coping skills, you starve yourself, you binge, you purge, you exercise, whatever your thing is, you do that to feel better. And then those same behaviors are actually making you feel worse and it's actually fucking up your life and it's actually making you obsess and taking you away from, from what good you do have in your life. And I guess to like bring it full circle, like what we were talking about earlier, um, in, in like, in like what, um, th these self-limiting beliefs and these ideas that like maybe a parent, you know, implanted or mm -hmm. a teacher or a comment or something that spiraled you, it could be at any age. <laughs> um, what helped me, um, recently is by like going back and kind of like internally mm -hmm. reprogramming that, uh -huh. that experience because mine started when I was, um, 
in in dance and I was really young, you know, I was like, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. And I would compare my short, little stubby, chubby body to these tall, skinny, lanky, beautiful girls. Mm -hmm. And that's where it started. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, what I tried to do, and this does take work, it does take imagination, it does take, you know, a radical kind of approach, but, um, you know, like trying to go, go back and tend to that little girl and Mm -hmm. talk to her and like visualize, you know, things going in a different way and not being so, um, sad with, with how I looked and reprogramming, like what teachers would say. And, Mm -hmm. um, those little experiences and those moments of your childhood or your adolescence that you can kind of pinpoint, okay, maybe that's where something happened there. And that's where part of the eating disorder was seated, like going in and journaling about it and just visualizing something different happening. Um, that's helped me a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I have this, um, this photo from when I was in third grade and you know, it it was like one of those things, you know, how like in third grade, like, I don't know if your school did this, but in my class, like everybody got to be like student of the week once. Um, yeah. And, you know, student of the day. Yeah. You'd have like your picture put in a little thing and like you got to bring some show and tell or something. I don't know what it was, but, um, you know, they took our pictures for this at school and I have this picture of me like eight years old and I was a pretty thin kid. Um, and eight is also like right when like the very, very first hints of puberty were starting for me. Um, Mm -hmm. and like, I, you know, it's like the early nineties, I'm wearing this like one piece, uh, suit uh, that's like magenta and turquoise in different blocked patterns of like a shorts. It's like connected. It's like a short skirt (laughs) and like shirt all in one. Um, I love it. Oh man. It's, it's, and like my mom had wanted me to wanted to do like a cool cute haircut so I have like this haircut and uh you know so I, I kind of look like a boy I'm missing my teeth you know? <laughs> that it's just like the awkward oh the awkward God. phase yeah the most awkward of our lives exactly. pretty much and like I remember getting this back like at the end of the year they give you your student of the week picture and like I had so much shame around it that I Aww. like hid it and didn't like show my parents didn't show anyone you know and just because I was like I was so disgusted you know and I had that much like loathing as a seven eight year old and man um, oh my god it's like I look at that now and like now I look at it and I'm like man I'm just like a knobbly need weird looking kid that's seven with no teeth and like like, this is just like, this is the stage of life that people yeah. go through, right? You know, and, um, and it's so much more, it, like, now looking back, I can have compassion for her, you know, and, and be like, hey, like, that's a hard time to be a kid, man. Like, yeah, you know, but like, all of this, like, shame that, that, that I had for my body, it wasn't my shame. It was, it was honestly, it was other people's shame. It was like shame of trauma and shame of diet culture and stuff like that. And yeah, I think that, um, you know, I carried that picture like around in a journal for, I want to say like the whole first year of my recovery, 
you know, and just reminding myself, like, I have to give love to this, to this little girl who has so much disgust with herself. Like, and now I can look at that little body and be like, man, like, like if I, if I had a child, you know, my son is, is five now, you know, and like, I want to give him so much love around his body, whatever it ends up looking like, you know, that, that those voices that try and sneak in from our culture or from other people that they just can't penetrate, you know, that's, that's my hope, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that's a beautiful practice and like practical way of, of recovering as well as the nourishment mm -hmm. is, you know, I do have a, a photo of myself as well when I was in that awkward phase with, with crooked teeth and glasses Mm -hmm. and um and that's when my eating disorder I think started to seed you know in dance and everything and I look at that photo as well and I try to like I try to reparent that that Mm -hmm. little girl Mm -hmm. and you know I'm sure everybody has heard the this this term of reparenting and but like really truly like like we can we can learn about it we can talk about it but like it when it comes to time to actually do the thing and recover, um, reparenting is is very real and it's a daily practice and it's a daily choice to to constantly try to reprogram and reparent those mm-hmm. those beliefs, you know, that that weren't ours, that that those beliefs about our body weren't ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's really it's been a, a practice that I've been in, mm-hmm. enjoying, even though it's kind of hard. And then also something that's been helping me as well, which I'm sure um, you you'll resonate with, is by finding people. You know, since since social media is such a prominent part of life, um, by doing a, a clean out and then mm-hmm. finding <laughs> finding people who have more so the body that you know you have or more like more curvy or the the kind of body that you'll probably have when you're fully weight restored if you're if you are um, underweight or someone who is in the same realm as you and you look at them and you're like wow I love their body like they're super hot or Mm -hmm. they're they're super attractive to me like I I follow a bunch of women who have larger bodies than me and when I see them and their confidence I'm like oh shit like they have a big butt and big thighs like I I would look good with that too you know Mm -hmm. so it's just like a it's like a constant reframe and like any little ways that Mm -hmm we can start to reprogram those, those thoughts. You know, it sounds silly, like using social media, but like for real, like what, what tools can we use to integrate? Um, It's going to look and feel different for everyone, but, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it in terms of like the norms that we're set up to see, you know, uh, even things like, like let's take body weight out of it and just think about, uh, you know, gender for a hot minute. Like, if you think about like, you know, how many like male athletes do you see on a day on TV? How many like male sports teams have you have you seen? How many like of our presidents and vice presidents and governors have been males? Like, if we think about just like how overpowering that message of like male norm 
male norms is, you know, and yeah. how unusual it is for us, you know, like we all probably know, you know, a few female athletes or something, but like, it's just like, we're, we're taught because of society to expect a male norm, you know? And yeah. no matter what, like, no matter how, like, you know, radical we are, no matter how awesome we are, like we have this internalized sense of like what what competence looks like and what leadership looks like. And it has a lot of these kind of quote male, uh, you know, characteristics or what have you. And, um, in, and, and, you know, same thing with whiteness, you know, how whiteness is normed, you know, and, yeah. and if we think about like thinness is also normed, like, it, you know, in the same way that we are just like bombarded by like thin, pretty white people. <laughs> Influencers. You know? Yeah. We gotta, we gotta, you know, we have to combat that somehow. And, and social media is a great way of doing that, you know, and honestly, just being exposed to something more makes you, sorry for my little puppy. No, you're fine. My dog's been barking too. <laughs> um, but just, just being exposed makes you like something more, you know, like, like, yeah. You know, and like maybe the first time that you see uh like a, a truly beautifully fat woman with her belly out. Like maybe the first thousand times that you see that, you have an internal reaction of like of of fear or some other kind of of you know, like questioning or confusion or whatever, you know, but it can get to the point where you like are seeing these other bodies, you know, there's a, an artist called Suge and there are, you know, they have a, a whole series called bodies like oceans and it, um, compares, you know, fat bodies to like how they move with water and they photograph fat folks in water, kind of very mermaid looking, uh, oh, cool. I like that other artwork where, you know, they, they photograph fat folks, you know, along like the, the rock formations of like Arizona and you can just see like, like this body is just from the earth the way other bodies are from the earth, you know? And, um, yeah, things like that, you know, have been to just see in myself, like to be able to recognize my own weight stigma and how I have those internal reactions and then to see how it can change that it doesn't always have to be this like, feeling of fear or disgust but like first we have to be honest with ourselves that that feeling of fear or disgust is there even yeah. if we don't want it you know we don't want to admit it we think it makes us bad people it just makes us people that grew up at this point in time in our culture but right. we do have choices over like whether or not we sit and stew in that or whether or not we change what's around us right and like make a choice okay I want to enjoy my life even if I don't technically love my body at this weight you know we we still deserve to enjoy life mm -hmm. and connect to what is going well and yeah. what is working and what does feel good and what does bring us joy and you know I I think something that came up when you were explaining all that um is that recovery is going to take a while um whether it's from drugs, alcohol, like you see, you see addicts that go to these meetings, right? I mean, they've been sober for what, 30 years. There's some of them who've been sober for 40 years and they're still going to meetings. The reason that is, is because they're still struggling and because 
recovery for them is a lifelong practice. It's mm-hmm. it's like a yoga practice, mm-hmm. you know? And like for me, it's like, well, the eating disorder for me, um, what, it, what it's been in my life for 15 years in, in different shapes and different forms hasn't been as, as intense, um, you know, these last several years, thank, thankfully. But it takes time to recover from anything mm-hmm. and especially a psychological disease um, or illness. And I think what they say about breakups too is like time can only heal. Like Mm -hmm. it's time's the only thing it can heal. And it's like time and time again, each day, each week, each month that you commit to recovering and doing these practices and doing little things each day to re-sculpt those, you know, fucked up um, Mm -hmm. beliefs that, that were, that, you know, that were kind of just drilled into your head without even wanting them just doing those little things each day and trying just trying to enjoy life in any way that you can that will for me at least um lower the volume of the eating disorder absolutely and i I think it's like we can't think about it as like there's no switch right like but there, I think there are moments where you have, I, you know, I call them glimpses. I don't know. I don't, you know, that's just a word that I came up with, but like, there are these like glimpses that I get where I'll have it and I'll be like, my God, like this is different than it used to be. Yeah. And, and like, you have that like inner knowing of like, like this, you know, I, I just had a glimpse, you know, and maybe it's really fast, you know, maybe it's just like, you just catch like the tiniest glimpse of yourself in the mirror and you're like, okay, you know, or maybe it's, you know, that you realize someday that like, you know, you just ate something that you never can eat without obsessing in your head and you're just cool about it. You know, you just like, you you know, you didn't worry about it. And then of course, after you ate it, then you worried about it. But like, (laughs) but you, you realize like, oh, like this is different than it used to be. Those are huge victories. Like they seem small, but they're huge. And like, yeah, I love that. Like those little glimpses of like, oh, like I'm actually really happy right now. Mm -hmm. And, and sometimes the eating disorder or the addiction or whatever it is, the depression will try to suck you away right, right away from those moments, Mm -hmm. you know, but, and, and make you think about um, your trauma or, or this or that, or all the things that aren't working out. But if we can continue to shift and pivot and, Mm -hmm. and focus on, okay, I'm, I'm going to be aware that this thought, you know, this thought about my body is stemming from childhood and it's not mine. And just that awareness and, like what you said earlier, um, you know, like like looking at a, a fat body and being disgusted the first thousand times, um, deepening those neural pathways is the only thing that's gonna help you know someone actually get out of the the mental illness. Is like continuing to um, unbrainwash yourself, you know, like. Um, from these from these ways of thinking and deepening those those grooves in the brain to to think in a different way it takes time absolutely and it's it's that like you know I think that's where the the choice in our recovery comes in is that we have choices about like how we spend some of our time you know we don't always have choices once we're in it you know like for those of us that you know 
bend a little bit towards that OCD side of the spectrum. You know, um, sometimes when we get started, it could take us a minute to get out. Um, I'm raising my but... hand right now because that's me. <laughs> me too. You know, uh, but we do have some of those, like, how am I going to spend my time? And like, when I do have those choice moments, like, what do I decide to do? Right. Like, would I rather obsess about, like, how thick my thighs feel or would I rather, like, do something productive, hang out with my mom, watch a movie, hang out with my cats, do art? Like, like, what's more important, you know? And I think the older older we get, like, like what you were saying earlier, I, which I loved, you're like, it just doesn't matter anymore. Like, just doesn't matter as much anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, like, a beautiful awareness thought to to hold on to like just keep going like it doesn't it doesn't really matter like yes our bodies do matter but like only to a certain extent like we should all be healthy but like the you know your the the weight on your thighs or on your belly um it shouldn't matter that much and just to try to try to stay with that thought will will help too yeah and to think too that like sometimes you know, you know, and I think this gets back to some of the, the chronic illness stuff that you talked about. Like sometimes we don't even have a choice over our health. You know, we don't like like our bodies just like are the way they are, and they either, you know, have health or don't, or they have disabilities or they don't, or they, you know, ha- have these obsessive neural pathways or they don't. Um, but it's like, how do we, like, how do we live into a right ethical compassionate way for ourselves and for others you know that's Mm -hmm. that's a lot where I where I come back to like you know yeah I you know maybe I'm healthier I'm definitely healthier today than I was you know 15 years ago um and you know I'm I'm not what people would call necessarily a picture of health either but like compared to like where I've been like I'm I'm grateful and you know yeah just like I love that like comparing mm-hmm. like like I actually did this um in therapy um like I know that we're getting up to the hour so if you have to dip just let me know but um I I wrote like a list of things that I used to do um at the peak of my eating disorder and things I don't do and things that you know I do now that are healthier and you know like I don't purge I don't do these things and it's like wow like if we could really sit down with ourselves and for anyone who's listening right now, if you're feeling like you're stuck and you're, you're feeling like you're just defeated, like seriously write down a list of like things that you did that were super toxic for your body and your mind. Mm -hmm. And you'll, you'll quickly realize that your progress is happening. It's just not happening as fast as you want it to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for a really long time, and I'd love to have you back on the podcast eventually. Um, and I'd love to for you to let everybody know like um, where they can find you, if anybody is struggling, if they, if they need resources, any anywhere that they could find you, or any um, last bit of, of anything that you'd like to share. Yeah, I mean, if people want to, so I'm like, don't have a website yet, <laughs> but people can find me on like Facebook or you can email me, uh, 
And That's it's funny because when I heard your podcast episode, I was like, "Shit, how am I gonna find her?" And I like re-listened to the episode, and I was like, "What? Like, how, how do I? I forget how I found you, I, but I found you, and I found your email. Like, I, it took me a little while, but I was like, I want this, I want this woman on my podcast. Like, I need to talk to her, <laughs> so I made it happen. Yeah, yeah, I, you know, I'm at the University of Denver now, so um, you can look me up there. Um, or I'm just Aaron.harrop at du.edu. Um, so yeah, that's probably the best way. <laughs> I am not on top of my online presence the way I should be. No, it's cool. <laughs> I, you know, when I, when I hear someone that I really just jive with, I'm like, I will find them. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. If there's any um, kind of last advice or just, anything on your mind that you'd like to leave people with who are struggling? I'd love to hear that. Um, you know, I, I, I think for me, it's that like our eating disorders lie and they tell us that like, that like a good life isn't possible for us, you know, or it's not possible for us in a certain body. And I'm just like, I'm so glad that like, that's not the end of the story, you know, and that, that life does get better. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a corny, like it gets better, but it's, it's true, you know? And, um, yeah, I haven't blossomed into a beautiful recovery butterfly yet, but like <laughs> I have come to a place in my life where like what I have now in the body that I thought I would hate, um, is, so valuable and so important and so life-giving and it you know like the most the for me the greatest part is that it gives me the chance to positively impact other people you know and that's something that I've wanted my entire life you know and I've only been able to find that in you know the the health and the body and the fat that I have now you know and yeah. if I was still in my eating disorder um I wouldn't have that I wouldn't have it so, um, yeah. And you're helping people through your vessel, which is yeah. your body, which yeah. is, you know, I'm to taking get that with me. I love, I love that. Like that this yeah. is the vessel you were given. And, you know, honestly, if I'd been given a thinner vessel, there are people that I wouldn't be able to reach. You're right. People resonate with you in the body that you have because they're, in that same journey perhaps or you know it's just you know it's it's something to think about for sure and I'd, I'd love to to have you back on the podcast at some point that would be great yeah. well thank you so much for having me today yeah
Thank you.